Well, happy Easter. Super glad that you're with us today. Certainly if you're here in this room, but if you're online with us or up in the loft, down in the chapel, just grateful that you are worshiping with us this Easter great day to celebrate, sing, and hopefully something that I might say would challenge you to think. You know, many respectable, intelligent people do not believe in God. And maybe that's you today. Maybe you came here today or you were dragged here today by someone and you're like, you know what, I'm a rational, logical, scientific person and I use this formula in my life, this if-then formula, that if God is real, then I should be able to see him. If God is real, then I should be able to explain him. I should be able to prove him. If God is real, then. And and you may look at the world and you're trying to make sense of what you see. And you go, "Well, well, people talk about God and that he's loving and kind and he's powerful. But if God is loving and kind and powerful, then why all the suffering? Why all the evil? Why the pain, the anxiety, the difficulty? Why? And you may have come to the conclusion that that means God's not real. If God is who I think he is, then I don't want anything to do with him. You may determine you're not interested. Many intelligent, capable, caring individuals do not believe in God. And that makes this gathering interesting because maybe this is the most pathetic gathering that could take place. That maybe this is just a religious crutch for simple-minded people, that maybe this is just this orchestrated event to make us feel good about ourselves, something to dress up for, something to celebrate. Maybe this is really the best April Fool's joke ever. He is risen, April Fool's. Like, maybe, maybe this is a joke. And I could understand why you think that. You might be going like, I know, I, that's what I feel. That's what, I, that's what I've tried to tell the people in my life, that God is a joke. And, and you might be thinking, well, I'm in a church, and there's a preacher up in front of me, and, and now you're going to try to prove to me that God exists. And here I go. I'm, I'm going to give you five easy tips of how you can know for sure that Jesus is real. I'm going to give you five irrefutable facts from history that are going to prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is who he says he is. That's what you're thinking I'm going to do, but that's not what I'm going to do because I can't. I can't. I don't think anyone can get up in front of you and try to prove to you empirically that God is real. But here's what I can do. I can point you to ten words that have helped me sort of sort through this whole idea of Easter. And so Psalm 14.1, it's just 10 words that I want to talk about with you for just a few moments. And this is written by a guy named David, and he says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now this is a historic king in the history of Israel. You can find it in the history books. An historic king makes the statement, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Ten words that are packed with meaning and, and have had profound impact if you, if you just look into it a little bit. Notice what he doesn't say in these ten words. He doesn't say, 
that the fool says in his mind that there is no God. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that your science can't prove God, therefore you're foolish. He doesn't say that. He makes a very clear statement that this is not about the empirical truth of our minds. This isn't about a litmus test. This isn't about a repeatable experiment to prove God. He's saying something specific about the heart. He says the foolish person is the one who says there is no God in his or her heart. There's a big difference between our heads and our hearts, isn't there? I mean, just biologically, physiologically, a brain and a heart are very different. And David's saying that foolishness resides in the heart. It's not about the brain. And here's what I think he means. It's my heart, not my mind, that drives me. It's my heart. So I think what happens in our hearts, we, we connect all the inputs of our bodies in our hearts. The heart is understood classically to be the center of the will, the intersection of where thought comes together, will and consciousness collide in the heart and synthesizes all the inputs to make will, decisions. And you might go, well, that sounds really philosophical. Let me use some easy examples to help you understand this. You know this phrase that we say or we hear people say? People say, I, I know this doesn't make sense, but. You hear that before? I know this doesn't make sense, but. We hear that. And, and this is what I mean. I know this doesn't make sense, Mom, but I'm going to jump out of a plane. Right? You've heard people say that. I know this doesn't make sense, but that cake looks really good, so I'm eating the whole thing. I know it doesn't make sense. I know it doesn't make sense, but I'm buying a new phone, a new television, a new car. I know it doesn't make sense. We say this all the time. I know it doesn't make sense, but I'm, I'm going to continue to do harmful things to my body. I'm going to continue to do harmful things with my life. I know it doesn't make sense, but I'm going to continue to love this person that's abusing me. I know it doesn't make sense, but I'm going to continue to enable my friend that makes stupid decisions. I know it doesn't make sense. Shows, that phrase, that statement shows, it acknowledges that our minds don't control us, but our hearts do. Because we sort of check our brain when we say those things and we follow our hearts. Another example, when you're facing a difficult decision, you might take a piece of paper out and write down the pros and the cons, right? So you make a list of all the pros about making this decision, all the cons, and you look at the pros and the cons. And any intellectual, logical, rational person goes, I can make, it, make sense of this and go, well, here's what the pros and cons say. Here's what my brain is telling you, but my heart feels something different. And you make the decision that makes no logical sense. You looked at the pros and cons and said, eh, I don't want to see that anymore. I'm going to follow my heart. Or think about love. Does love ever make sense? Does it ever make sense? Think about it in the sports world. A fan, a sports fan, loves their team even though their team stinks. And they just, it makes no logical sense to continue to follow a team that loses. I want to share with this. This is a profound truth. I'm a, I'm a football guy. So, so there are people that are waking up today 
saying they love the Cleveland Browns. That makes no sense. Year after year, draft after draft, they, they build a team and they stink every stinking year. It makes no logical sense whatsoever to say, I love the Cleveland Browns. So don't raise your hand right now because we're all going to hate on you. Like, what is wrong with you? But isn't that what love does? Isn't that what love does? Or maybe you fell in love. Maybe you fell in love with a woman you fell in love with a man, and you found yourself doing things that just make no sense. I mean, you'll drive five hours to see someone for five minutes. What? You'll spend all kinds of money that you don't have. You'll go to the opera because she loves the opera. What is wrong with you? You'll write a poem or a card that if you showed the guys at the club your poem, they would be like, what happened to you? Because love makes you do things that don't make any sense. You see, for most of us, we take input from our minds. We make decisions with our hearts. So when David says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, he's not saying that your brain doesn't matter. He's not saying that at all. He's saying, allow your brain to be one input into a decision. And maybe, just maybe, don't see your brain as the main input all the time about your decisions. Probably the most famous verse in the Bible is, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. You see, this is who God is. He is love. And love drives everything God does. So for God so loved the world that he made us. For God so loved the world that he gave us choices. We're not robots. We make decisions. For God so loved the world that the decisions we make to rebel against him, to stiff arm him, to ignore him, or to avoid him, he so loved us that he doesn't just wipe us out and annihilate us as rebels. He so loved the world that he made a plan, put it in place to send his son in the most unique way to show us love. For God so loved the world that Jesus walked on planet earth and loved God perfectly and loved his neighbor perfectly. For God so loved the world that Jesus willingly walked right into the hands of people that were going to mock him, spit on him, and nail him to a cross. For God so loved the world that he took the punishment that brings us peace, peace with God. He took it on his shoulders. For God so loved the world that Jesus did not stay in a grave dead. But he rose again powerfully, victoriously, so that God would show real people like you and me that Jesus wasn't just some good moral teacher. He was God, because only God could walk out of a grave alive. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in Jesus shall not perish, but have eternal life. I'm really glad he doesn't say, 
whoever understands Jesus, whoever figures Jesus out, whoever dissects Jesus and finds the pH balance of Jesus. He, he doesn't say any of that. He says, if you believe, you will have eternal life. And I don't know about you, but there's things that I believe in that I cannot figure out, that I don't have the answers for. So, example, a bunch of us do this. We, we go to this place where we stand in line and go through security, and then we sit and wait, and they call our number, and we walk into this metal tube with seats in it, and we sit down, and they feed us peanuts and ginger ale, and we watch a movie, and we're sitting there like this, and all of a sudden, we're going to take off, and we go up in the air, strapped onto a metal tube, 38,000 feet into the sky, with tons of people next to each other, and we're flying. Can you explain that? Some of you are smart, I know. I'm not. I don't get it. And every time I get into a plane, I'm looking around going, am I the only idiot that goes, how is this happening? <laughs> I don't understand how this can happen. How can tons of weight be up in an air in the sky and we're all just watching a movie and eating pretzels like this is no big deal? <laughs> this is a big deal. And then it comes down and the wheels don't pop and the thing doesn't slam into a building. Because somebody up front goes, let's put her down. I mean, this is crazy. I don't get it, but I believe it, and I get in that plane every time I go, don't you? Isn't it incredible that he says, he who believes, not figures out, not knows all the answers, not has all their doubts fixed, who might not be able to prove anything, he who believes can have a relationship with Jesus, with God, and you know, any relationship better take your brain and your heart together, because any relationship that just uses the brain ain't a relationship, but God came to earth to have a relationship with us, which requires brain and heart to believe. He so loved the world. So if you want foolproof evidence today that Jesus lived and died and rose again, you came to the wrong guy. I don't have it for you. I, I'm, I might say to you that some of you are very intelligent and you want to use your brain, and God doesn't cause, say to you, don't use your brain, but there are smart people. I'd, I'd tell you, if you want to know about Jesus and proofs, I would encourage you to Google a guy named Lee Strobel, and, and he's a really smart person who's an atheist, a really smart person who doesn't believe in God, and who is studied at Yale Law School, not a dummy, and is the editor of the Chicago Tribune, not stupid. And in researching an article about Jesus, he bumped into the living Christ. He wrote a book called The Case for Christ. It's a movie too. I dare you to Google it, look at it, watch it, and see what you think. But if you're looking for proof from this guy, I don't have it. Here's what I can give you, hope. I can give you the hope of Jesus Christ because God so loved the world that he sent Jesus here to live and die and rise again. And it's always the love of Christ that pulls people to him. It's always the love of Christ that draws people to Jesus, or draws people to him. And you know, when you look at Jesus in the Gospels, people followed Jesus. Was it because he was such a stellar athlete? Was it because he was so handsome? Was it because he was such a great teacher? 
No, in everything he did, love came out. And that's why people from different races and different religions, different genders, young and old, educated and uneducated, blue-collar and white-collar, broken people, smart people, every different kind of person was drawn to Jesus because of his love for people. And there was this woman named Mary who followed Jesus. She interacted with Jesus. She walked with Jesus. She listened to Jesus. Her life was changed by Jesus. And one day, Jesus went to a cross, and Mary watched firsthand as this guy she loved got whipped and nailed to a cross. And Mary watched as they took his cold, dead body off a cross and put it in a tomb. And she was eyewitness Two, them rolling a big stone in front of Jesus' grave so that animals and people couldn't destroy his body or steal it. This woman named Mary, on the first Easter, John records what took place in her life. And he says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, this Mary, Mary went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. She saw it put there, now it's been rolled back. So she came running to Simon Peter and to the other disciples, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and John go running to the tomb, and they can't find Jesus either. And John tells us they still didn't understand from the Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. She didn't realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking Jesus was the landscaper, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, Tell me where you've put him, and I will go and get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out, Teacher. Mary's got a relationship with Jesus. Her mind is telling her, wait, dead things stay dead. A dead thing was put there. A big stone was rolled. I come back. The dead thing should be there, but now the stone is gone what did you do with them? Because that's what her mind is saying. But her heart is longing and seeking and wanting. And in that moment, she hears her name called. And she knows the voice of her God. And she rejoices. What made her seek and search after Jesus was love. What propelled these disciples, these everyday people, when Jesus dies and rises again and then ascends back to God, they saw it with their own eyes. What propels them to talk about all of this, to tell people about it, is their love. And I don't know if you know history, but Christian history is very clear that these people that talk about Jesus, if he was dead or stolen, how would they possibly speak about him so boldly? And how would they possibly put up with torture? Because history says... They were tortured and persecuted because they loved Jesus and they could not help talking about him. And now down through the ages, we hear this account of Jesus. Billions of people have heard the account of Jesus and it's changed their lives. It's come down through the ages to us and it's changed my life. And, and I can just simply say to you, 
I struggle to believe. I have doubts and skeptical. There are things I don't understand and can't explain. But the love of Christ has changed me. It's made me different as a man, as a husband, as a coach, as a person. It's penetrated my heart and changed who I am. And you want to know about the biggest April Fool's joke in the joint. It's me sitting here talking to you. Because I'm a landscaper. I was trained at Rutgers University to be a landscape architect. I weed whack and build walls. That's what I do. But God has called me in his love to speak. And the only reason I do it is because I love him so much I can't stop talking about him to you. But it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And yet God can use love to change if you would just open your heart to the possibility that there are times you can't explain things, yet you believe. Jesus tells a story. I think that's worth repeating. You know, stories are always helpful because they help you understand and see something. He tells a story about a really rich father, a guy who has a ton of cash, and he has a family. And one of his arrogant, reckless sons comes to him and says, hey, Dad, we need to talk. Listen, you are loaded, and you're going to die at some point. You'll take a dirt nap, and when you die, I will get an inheritance. Why don't you give me that inheritance now, and we skip all of this, waiting around for you to die? And the father loves his son so much that he says, okay, son, you want your inheritance now? I'm not going to force you to keep my riches for later. You want it now? Here, take it now. And the son does what any reckless teenager would do. He takes the cash from his dad and spends it, blows through all of it, and lands himself in the gutter, face down in slop because of reckless decisions he made with all the cash, thinking he was the big dog on top of the world had a lot of fun and partied hard, finds himself face down, and, and he thinks to himself, wait, you know, my dad's got a business, and even the people, the lowest part of the org chart and my dad's business are treated better than I'm being treated now, so, so maybe I should go back to my dad, and his mind kicks in, and he goes, no, I, I can't. I mean, I've taken his cash. There's no way I could... He wouldn't accept me back. In his mind, he goes, this doesn't make any sense. There's no way my dad would welcome me home. But then his heart kicks in. And he knows his dad is love. And so he turns. He starts walking back to his dad. His dad sees a reckless son off in the distance. And he runs to his son. And says, the only thing more reckless than your behavior is the love I have for you that transcends all of your poor decisions, transcends all the ways you've made mistakes in the past and in the present and the future. I love you so much, son. Jesus uses that story to demonstrate himself and the love God has for people. If you would just believe, not solve, not figure out, not have any without doubts, but just say, okay, 
I believe, God, your love is real. Because this is what the Bible says. He says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to live and die and rise again to show us exactly what love looks like. And it is so incredible, it is so wide, it is so deep, it is so radical, it almost makes us think this can't be true, but it's that good. It's that full. It's that gracious. It's that merciful. But here's the deal. It's love, which means you can reject it. You can say, no, I don't want it. The sad part to saying no to the love of God is that the decision you make in life will follow you through death and you will be separated from God forever because of the decision you made today. And so to welcome this love is to receive it. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest from your shame, rest from your trying harder, rest from your religion, rest from doing more, and rest from maybe your brain running, 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 trying to solve all of this, when at the end of the day, he just wants to walk with you. And he'll show you and lead you and guide you into more understanding. He's just waiting for you to say, yes, I believe. That's what Easter is all about, love. Would you pray with me? God, in this place today, there are many people that have heard this truth and they've responded to you and they are your sons and daughters, not by any works they've done because we can't do any work to please you. Jesus did the work on the cross, and all we do is believe. But there are others today in the loft, here in the center, online, that are maybe hearing this for the first time, maybe for the first time realizing that they're not going to figure it out intellectually, but maybe they can believe without having all the answers because they desperately want to be loved, and you love them. And the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved, adopted into his family forever. It's not a magical prayer you have to pray. You don't have to do anything. You just open your heart, and he knows what's going on inside you. He knows what you're thinking. And all you do is choose to believe, and he promises to come in. The only thing he's going to take from you is your shame and your sin, and he's going to give you himself, and he's going to walk with you. So put your trust in Jesus. Jesus, you are love, and we celebrate that today. The great hope of the gospel is that you lived, died, and rose again to bring people who would say yes into your family forever. This is our joy. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.